So welcome back, Mark. We are at one hour and 25 seconds where uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Arthur Fleck, is on the Mari pa- watching the Mari Paulvitt show or the Murray Franklin show. Does it really matter? The Murray matter? Frank Berger show. <laughs> <laughs> the so Rick and Morty show. What is he watching? I don't remember. <laughs> I think it's – did they actually have TVs in like – cases like this back then where yes, it was like like they sure did they still do in some places in some backwater places or <laughs> general places yeah so he's in the hospital's mom contracted covid19 trying to figure out what's going on here <laughs> so we're at we're at one hour and 25 seconds so if you want to sync up your movie we are part two of this joker commentary track but before we do that uh Mark, what what are your thoughts so far on this first hour of the film? Oh, I, I love this movie. Uh, I think it's terrific, and I'm. It, it, whenever I watch it, it makes me want to go back and watch uh, the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, which are two two of my favorite of uh, Martin Scorsese's films, and which it takes a lot of uh, obvious inspiration from. So uh, if you haven't seen, if you are a fan of the Joker and if you're watching the Joker movie, uh, if you have not seen Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy, I highly recommend you go back and watch those films. Watch Taxi Driver and then watch The King of Comedy uh, and then watch Joker again and think about all of the various inspirations uh, that that exist in it. But just generally speaking, yeah, this is a uh, Joaquin Phoenix's most powerful performance i believe and uh, i think he he was a shoe in as we walked out of that theater the first time i saw it with a small group of people uh, other film journalists and walking out even people who had mixed feelings about the movie agreed that oh yeah he is easily the front runner for for best actor at the academy awards mm-hmm. or uh, what we can now probably call the last academy awards that were ever held and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so it's 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 wonderful and it's interesting you know the joker now the joker has two academy awards under his belt think about that supporting mm-hmm. actor and lead actor he's won both categories yeah fuck you jared leto <laughs> <laughs> so if he uh if if somebody makes wears a joker costume and makes a movie and then wins best director then jo- that's pretty much the only way joker is going to be able to top himself at this point <laughs> i my, my question to you is this do you think this movie is as successful because it's a it was a worldwide phenomenon do you think if this movie comes out in 1989 or 1994 that this movie is as successful theatrically obviously it's critically acclaimed but do you think it gets that same cachet if it were to come out earlier it kind of feels like this film was set like right at the perfect time with all the like the 
the undertones of the politics of the social reform movements that are going on in the world. But do you think that if this movie came out like 88, 89, early nineties, do you think it plays it's as a phenomenon? Yeah. I think the fact that it's the Joker and especially if it came out in the aftermath of the, the first Batman movie, the Tim Burton Batman film in 1989, I think, Prior to that, no, I don't think it hits. I don't definitely don't think it's the same level of blockbuster success. But I think post nineteen eighty nine, you know, in the nineteen eighties and in the early nineteen nineties, R rated you could have R rated films that were regularly blockbusters and were regularly capturing the social zeitgeist. You know, it, it nobody thought twice about making a movie R rated and assuming that they could make a blockbuster film. So I think it would in that era that you're talking about the late 80s and early 90s after Batman had already been established as a serious cinematic presence. I think this film would have been success. I don't it wouldn't have done a billion because movies didn't. Right. But it would I think it would have been a hit. I think the best era, the best chance it had at doing the kind of business it did now would have been in the the few years immediately after The Dark Knight. If Uh this film had come out then and had been just slightly tweaked to make it, uh, you know, with the same with the Jared, uh, uh, with the Heath Ledger Joker, then I think you're talking about a billion to a billion and a half dollar uh, box office performance as well. But do you yeah. do, do you think Nolan would have allowed that though? Do you think Nolan would have allowed someone to take his because we all kind of know like oh, no. what kind of, because <laughs> no, he's he not. put the kibosh on Bale being Batman and and BBS and everything. So I just like, as much as I'd like to see that Heath Ledger version, I just don't, I don't foresee Nolan. No, you know. I think if Heath Ledger had, had not passed away, then I think there's, if Heath Ledger were, had, were still alive, then we would have obviously gotten a Batman sequel much sooner because Nolan mm-hmm. already wanted to make a follow up with Heath Ledger as the Joker returning in a third film. And I think in that case, if somebody had had come up with this and approached him, Todd Phillips or whoever had come forward and said, look, we've got this idea. We'd like to do this Heath Ledger movie. Here's what it is. Then I think it's possible that Nolan would have said, oh, sure, that sound that looks really good. And, you know, and if Heath Ledger had done had played the role. But I don't think I definitely agree with you. There's no way Nolan would have allowed a separate movie of this sort playing off of his batman films to have been made at that time so it's weird that he's so in the way it is he he's so entrenched like he like i like it's isn't it weird to you that he thinks that tenant is gonna come out this year in july (laughs) yeah it's i mean it is what it is Uh, nobody it's hard to talk about Things change, you know, day to day practically. And at this mm-hmm. point, and we're we're in a world now where, as we all know, every month has ten thousand days in it. So it's hard <laughs> to know because July is about twenty five thousand days away. So in that scenario, we're living Groundhog Day. But uh, yeah, I I think it's I think it's fair to say that it's I think it's wishful thinking at this point. Um, there aren't many places. This goes. This is a huge tangent, and I don't want to derail the conversation about the film. But I don't think that we're. I think anyone who believes that we're going to go back to normal and that movie theaters will be open, let alone that if they open, that audiences will flock to it, when more than two thirds of the public thinks that we should not reopen 
right now and thinks that it's way too early and that things should stay on lockdown for the summer. If two thirds of the public think that, what do you think is going to happen to your movie if movie theaters do open and your movie comes out and only 20 percent of the audience you would have got shows up? If Tenet opens in July and it only opens to twenty five million dollars, that's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's better to to sit that out, I would say. So and if you I, want I more, if you want more, I'm sorry to cut you off, Mark. But if you no, want to no. hear more about Mark's thoughts, especially on Disney side, he did just drop an article today. So make sure that you uh, check that out. Uh, where can we find that, Mark? Uh, uh, Forbes online. If you go to Forbes.com backslash sites, S-I-T-E-S backslash Mark Hughes, then you can find that article. Um, and yeah, I talk a lot about what I think the future of cinema, uh, theatrical releases and, and Warner brothers streaming and Disney streaming. It's nothing. I don't, I don't believe anything's going back to the way it was. I think it's fundamentally changed forever, but I think it was going to happen anyway. Streaming was going to cause this, the pandemic has just expedited that process by several years, mm-hmm. but it was it was already Disney's general plan was going in this direction anyway. It's not a secret. Everyone that could follow was going to try to at the point that it became apparent how much more profitable this model was. Theaters are still going to stick around. It's just interestingly enough, if you're if you're among the people that complain about oh, there's too many tent poles, oh, it's too hard to find room in the theaters for smaller films if you think oh there's too many big budget movies oh there's too many disney movies guess what you're gonna get your wish because all of that's gonna change <laughs> so, in a way it's gonna go back to the 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 model that used to exist before block in the 70s uh mm-hmm. except there'll be you know imax and dolby theaters will have the big tent pole releases but they'll only be in theaters two to four weeks and most of the theaters, you're not going to have as many cineplexes. There'll be a few theaters, and there'll be a lot more room for smaller, mid-range budget films now. Yeah, so make sure that you're definitely checking that out on the interweb. Since you have time, and since this is a Bill Murray Groundhog Day that you're just reliving over and over again, just read it every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so now that we have... Kyle, any any thoughts before we start this? Man, I thought I was only in quarantine for like 700 days, but apparently it's been a few thousand. <laughs> I lost track of time there. What, I, I think what should happen is we should all have our own avatars, like in the movie <laughs> Avatar, and we just live on this uh, Pandora, and like that's just how we kind of move on with our lives. Instead of us, like we just go into this, we go to sleep, we go into this weird like blue body, and then we're good. We're good to go. VR, dude. VR. Yeah, we're, we're just going to go live in the Tron interaction. world. <laughs> live in Tron. I would love to live in Tron world. Give me Tron world. Exactly. I'd like a bike. I'd like a bike, please. And also, could I please use my bike to build walls and kill other people, please? Thank you. <laughs> yes. And then can, like, my life's soundtrack just be Daft Punk? Blasting oh, <laughs> in the background. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to get going because if not, we're just going to keep doing this. So we're at one hour and 20, we're one hour exactly 20, 25, 25 seconds, seconds into that. So Kyle, want to give the countdown? All right. So if you guys have your copies of Joker open at, at that time, we can resume in a three, two, one, go.
His mom contracted the COVID. She's got the Rona. <laughs> yeah. This moment where he's seeing, I love this. The moment where it contrasts this with when he was in that comedy club. And then when he first saw himself on TV, mm-hmm. his, his expression here and his realization, you know, reality is starting to kind of break through the cracks of his delusion and his little fantasy world that he's been kept himself sequestered in. He, what is awesome, too, is he looks like the Neil Adams version of Joker. Yeah, good like call. It's, it's so weird. Like it's weird that you know, and if we if we look at his like little nightstand, he's got the gun, he's got cigarettes, he's got his notebook out, smoked a lot. But make sure that we when we get to that scene, Mark, when we get to that scene at the end before when he shoots that dude or stabs that dude in the eye, right before he's got, he uses the cigarettes to make that smile in the oh, wall. Yeah. So I just want to. I that's one thing, one little note that I wrote today before we started this. No, I, I like the, the clown masks that there's that the picture of the person in the clown mask on the cover and that the clown masks are a little bit of a nod to the uh, the Dark Knight mm-hmm. and the masks that they wear at the start of the Dark Knight, obviously. And then the, the, the that Dark Knight mask was actually a mask that was repu- replicated from the 66 show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was a Joker. The It was from the uh, the original Adam West Batman TV series. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that little detail. That's actually really neat. He's like a, he's like OCD about Thomas Wayne as well. It's so like he just stares off. And now they're now they're protesting uh, the lockdown situation. See, this is what's interesting here is, and this is something that I try to. A lot of people that think that the oh the movie is suggesting that the Joker himself had a social message or a meaning, and it's he never had a meaning. He never gave no. a shit about this. The point is that all these people interpreted him through their own filter of what they wanted and thought, and he thinks it's funny, and he's watching it on TV. Mm-hmm. To him, he all he cares about is getting Thomas Wayne to admit something to him and to validate his personal feelings. And this whole crowd is there and to him in a way they're chanting. It doesn't matter what they're there for in their own minds for him. They're there supporting him. And that's all mm-hmm. that matters. And he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care about what their thoughts or their opinions on any of this is. Yeah. He's for the chaos. He's for the social breakdown of society and like you can see as soon as he walks in he's just laughing hysterically but he's not like really like he's not really showing that laughter because if he isn't amongst a very violent crowd and there's all of a sudden there's just like this crazy dude laughing it's gonna make things unsettling for those people but it's interesting to see like the social class and the different classes that's kind of that was kind of brought up in the dark that rises kind of play a factor in this film as well so yeah there was uh it's once again we're seeing a manipulation of we're seeing the combination of people who have suffered economic oppression and whose anger is out there and that there are people willing to take advantage of both sides of that Mm -hmm. who will take advantage of the economic anger but who will also take advantage of the authoritarian tendencies and to persecute those very people who latch on to that message, uh, it's like Fight Club. 
essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this, this guy comes along and says, oh, you've all lost your individualism. I'll give you your individualism. Just surrender it all to me mm-hmm. and make me your your Fuhrer. And that's that's what it's all about. It's the, you know, there's a common thread there uh, about avoiding being conscious of and avoiding letting yourself just be someone's dupe and just join it. it it's unfortunately very common. I love this scene as well as as he's in the bathroom waiting for his father, which isn't his father. He's waiting for Thomas Wayne to kind of, and he's like playing it. Like you can see he's like playing this moment in his, like in the back of his head, like how is this going to go? What's this going to be like? And then like the moment where he's like, where he's like, can't you guys, I can't remember the exact line, but he's like, can't you just guys for a second just like hear me out and like, Show some courtesy to me. Like, I'm tired of being kicked around. Still wish this, this, the Alec Baldwin would have played this role. I think it would have, like, he's fine in it, but I feel like Alec Baldwin would have just given it a, a little bit more pizzazz. I, I think a lot of what this is about, like, the, this perception in his mind of that he's been kicked around or whatever, but a lot of it is about he perceives a lot of slights that don't necessarily exist, which I know sounds weird in this scene because the guy's dismissing him. But if you think about Thomas Wayne for a second, and he's a guy who he had someone that was an employee who was obsessed with him and was deranged, who had a son that was abused and who has started telling, trying to claim that this kid is his. And then that kid grows up and comes and break and essentially sneaks in somewhere and confronts you while you're taking a leak in the bathroom. What this is really about, and if you think about what Arthur wants, he wants validation. Mm-hmm. He wants someone to te- what he wants is someone to to validate him. That's what he wants. It's not about like this idea that he just wanted a father. He wanted someone to shower him. He wanted someone to give him affection. And that's on one level, that's understandable. And we can sympathize with it. And the film, you know, he's the protagonist. You have to sympathize with the protagonist of the film, at least on some level. But it doesn't make him right. And it doesn't mean that uh, that you're sympathizing because his feelings are valid. And even what he's saying uh, about wanting the love and that, you know, he just wants a dad. It's not because it's about wanting the parental figure per se. It's about wanting validation for who he already is. Mm -hmm. He wants someone to say all of your anger and resentment is okay. And I, it's whatever you do is okay. You killed those guys. That's okay. You're, you're acting this way. That's okay. Yeah. uh, You enjoyed killing. You want the chaos. You hate the world. That's okay. That's what he wants. And a father figure is someone that he feels like, oh, you're obligated to give me that. I, you have to do that because you're my dad. You have to tell me I'm right. It doesn't work out that way, obviously. This is such a weird scene. <laughs> what, wasn't this scene like a... Uh, it was just kind of like like improv on set? Yeah, I think I, I'd have to go back and check because we have the original script, as you mentioned in the the first half of this uh, podcast. Uh, we had the original script, and I don't remember if this was directly was specifically described in it or not. But I remember uh, at some, he was when they were filming this that I think he said, 
Joaquin Phoenix just kind of did this and just started, he was taking stuff out of the fridge and he suddenly just emptied the whole fridge and climbed inside it. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> Shirley Woods, what a nice lady. <laughs> like, like he's like every scene, he just is. What I like about it is like Jack Nicholson really overplayed the Joker, and like Joaquin Phoenix is underplaying. If that makes sense, he's yeah. really subdued and really just kind of like you see, like he's always thinking there's always something going on in the back of his head where Jack Nicholson shout out to Jack Nicholson since it is his birthday today. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Happy birthday, yeah. Jack. <laughs> so if you're, all- yeah, if you're listening, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and like, like, wow, Todd Phillips just hit this shit out of the park. Like I said, at, the, the, our, at our first, like our first episode of this, if, just There's couldn't see it. Inside him, waiting. There's. It goes to what you were saying about the understatement of his performance. That he's mm-hmm. playing this as someone. There's something unwinding and unraveling. It's always been there, and it's clawing its way to the surface. And he, the first portion of the film, he's he's struggling to keep it contained because that's what you're supposed to do. And he doesn't want to get locked up in an asylum again so he's doing his best to contain it but he's slowly but surely he's letting it take control of him and he's finding out that he likes it and like it was weird that you said that like he's trying to get out and then there's that dude on the gurney like trying to get out of the gurney yeah (laughs) it's like we've podcasted before mark I, and I love this scene, too. He's like, I fucked up. Like, I fucked up. And you can, like, see it. But to me, this is all just – he's playing this all up. I think he's just – to me, I don't – and we'll get to this at the end, but I don't think any of this is real. I think this is all part of him just telling a story about his life as, like, a fabrication. So we'll see. I take this – this part I interpret as – being more true to life and is i mean all of it is an there's an unreliable narrator aspect and it's filtered through a guy who's obviously completely psychotic but i think that there's uh i think that's fair it's fine for movies to do that but i also think as viewers we have to kind of assume there are points of reference and like we have to we have to take some of it at face value and i think the Mm -hmm. film uses certain cues to give us, uh, it keeps us off balance, and sometimes it tricks us with those cues, but I think there are certain cues in terms of how people treat him and how he's acting that are signals, and I do think that he's so much more, he's got a confidence in this scene, and it's a confidence that used to exist in his fantasy moments Mm -hmm. when he was at the club giving his stand-up and he imagined everyone was applauding him or that he was dating her. Mm-hmm. Those things, but spoiler alert! Yeah, it's starting to <laughs> it's starting to manifest 
in how he acts. He's increasingly incapable of differentiating between the real world and the fantasy, mm-hmm. and the fantasy version of him that he's been keeping contained is coming out. It's coming out in real life. It's coming out in his real world interactions more and more and more now. And you can tell that it's awkward and how he acts is awkward and weird and creepy when he's doing it instead of seeming charming and that everyone likes him. In this scene, he's doing it and he looks like a he looks crazy and creepy. And the guy is like, you're crazy and creepy (laughs) before he did it. And it came off as like awkward, but he imagined it as charming and that everyone saw it as charming. And that's how I distinguished between those were obviously his fantasy, whereas this is a real version of he's just acting like a crazy bastard. And this guy is like, you are a crazy bastard. <laughs> and I love how he steal And there's like a tug of war with it. <laughs> just give it up, man. Just give it up. I love how he runs, too, down the hall. He runs yeah. like a clown. Yeah, he runs. like It's all Bugs Bunny and cartoonish yeah. all the way. And I love that. It's something that I'm going to give a shout out to Birds of Prey because it's something that I like about Birds of Prey too is that much more of the exaggerated physicality and the cartoon character, the Bugs Bunny type or Charlie Chaplin kind of uh, uh, and Buster Keaton kind of physical humor. And I, I think Joaquin Phoenix smartly incorporated a great deal of that into his performance here. It works I, lo- I love the score right here too. Like, like shout out to Hildur uh, Gonatier, Gonatier. I can't. I can never pronounce her last name. But amazing, amazing score. So I'm like, this is just a masterpiece. This is a modern masterpiece that just on works on every single level. That makes you think. That's entertaining, and you just. It's like it's such an unexpected film, and it just works on every level. And I, like, I just don't know how else to explain how wonderful and how demented this film is. Yeah. And like now he's now just for listeners. Now he's kind of going over and looking at uh, a file on him, on his mother about the abuse that he endured and she endured as, you know, she, you know, he's kind of coming to a realization that he was adopted looking at the clips from the newspaper so yeah hour 14 in in case anyone i love the idea too that he is in in the the room room. (laughs) with her and he's trying to like it's such an interesting way to kind of like it's like he's yeah. Kind of seeing like her reaction to everything and how everything's kind of like a big joke now. So it's, it demonstrates the depth of his imagination and how much he lives inside his own head. And that that scene was very realistically portrayed, but he's just reading a report and imagining it. So it kind of is, it's one of the many hints that like you can't. Just take it at face value what you see because you saw that and it sure looked like that's what really happened but that was him imagining how it played out kyle don't be a silent partner what do you what are your thoughts it's about to go down <laughs> <laughs> but no like I, I i sympathize with him like that that's not anything anyone wants to experience you know the the realization that 
pretty much everything you thought your whole life was kind of a lie. Him having to come to grips with that amongst all this other horrible stuff that's been going on. It's definitely enough to lead him to the breaking point. It also makes you, it makes you wonder, did he just not remember all that? Because he was, you know, when you look at the age of him and what they were talking about, how old he was, he was four and five years old. And that's pretty intense. Did he shut it out? Mm-hmm. Was he willfully denying the reality of what happened to himself? And then, you know, his mother was institutionalized for years. Mm-hmm. Where was he? Well, he was taken away from her. How did he not remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he did remember that and he just chose not to. Or it's just all lies. He's all fe- just and like in the. I don't know if this is this version was different in the script that you saw, Mark. But the script that I saw, like he walks in on, uh, I can't remember her name, but Zazie Beetz's character was like sleeping with someone, and like it freaked him out and pissed him off. But I like yeah. this version better. I like this yes. version better because it's a, it's much more intense and creepy and uncomfortable and unsettling. Like, because that him walking in on her sleeping with someone else, having sex with someone else is such a cliched version. Yeah. But this works so much better, you know, yes. and I'm glad that they I'm glad that they made this change. Yeah, this this scene is, works exceptionally well. And to establish like they sh- they give you the flashbacks of him remembering, oh, I was alone, but. You arguably could have done. You arguably could have done this without showing the flashbacks, where it reveals that he was by himself. Her reaction is enough to establish that mm-hmm. that was all his delusion. And I think there's an argument to be made that it, it might have been better to leave it out. And that that's I understand completely and think it's valid that they put it in and that it's occurring to him. It's his aha moment and admitting to himself the truth. Once again, the same as with the, his upbringing. Why did he not remember that he was abused? Why did he not remember that he was taken away from his mother and that she was institutionalized apparently for years? Well, how did he not remember his childhood? You know, he wasn't an infant when this happened. Mm-hmm. So self-delusion is what it's all about, obviously. And now we're and, seeing the, like, the reveal of she's never really there. Yeah. And like just the way that you know Todd was able to do his setups and his and everything you know with those reveals and every, and how he was able to differentiate the differences instead of just having like the next scene it just be the same kind of like setup with the, the character in the same exact location he kind of like moved the camera around I like those as well Man, he's so skinny right now. It's crazy. Yeah, he was able to grab those files earlier <laughs> and run <laughs> off of them. I like how much of his... He's so jittery, and in scenes where he's like moving and touching his body, constantly aware of his own... Like, he's not comfortable. He's so uncomfortable in his own skin, and he's able... As a performer, uh, Phoenix is the way he twists and makes his spine stick out or his ribs stick out and stuff, making it look like this guy who's just, oh, he's a bag of bones and he's uncomfortable and it's all the bones are for it's something else inside him. And that he's, it's just, it's a ma- it's really, really masterful performance. Like and to me, it's like that really accentuated this scene. Sorry. This scene's hard to, to hard to watch too. 
very, very, very hard to watch uh, for me. I don't know why. There's something about Arthur, you know, spoiler alert, killing his mother. You know, Is there something as... about that that disturbs you? <laughs> no, well, well, yes, it disturbs me, but it just, yeah. it's just, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like psycho, where you kind of realize that mom's kind of dead, and it's like, I don't know, for some, when I was, I watched Psycho the other day, I was like, man, like this scene, could you just imagine it in Psycho, if like they had a scene like from the Joker in that film and everything, it just, I don't know. He like he's so angry at his mother right now too, or his adoptive mo- mother. Do you think it's anger or is it more? I think in a way, I think there's an anger, but I think there's also a resignation here that he's just like, you know what? Now I realize it's a comedy. He's reached a point. It's he's not doing this in a moment of passion. He has completely embraced. At this point, we saw him break, having the breakdown when he find, when he reads the report and realizes and remembers the truth, and then the night when he's at home by himself and he's on the couch and he's just antsy and he's grabbing the pillow and he's laughing and crying at the same time alone. And now suddenly he's sitting there calm and smoking a cigarette and he says, "It's not. It's not a condition. I don't have a condition. It's just who I am." <laughs> this is him coming to grips with he's at his he's he's had his moment of calm and he knows he just wants to kill everybody now he's just he's just gonna kill everybody that's it that's who he is because he's the joker <laughs> i mean the nurses here are horrible like they didn't they didn't realize that the that her heart monitor was jumping and then all of a sudden just done and like this scene's unsettling too how he play like he plays back in the old VCR and like tries to mimic whoever this Justin Thoreau character is. Yeah. Because that's who he looks like. Looks like Justin Thoreau. He's trying to impersonate how a normal person acts. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't know how to act. He doesn't know how to act like a normal person. So he's watching another normal person and he's how do you move? <laughs> how does your facial expression? What does a per it's what a sociopath or a psychopath does to study normal people to understand how to act normal and how to fool people into thinking they're normal. Except he has no idea that he's not going to fool anybody into thinking he's normal because he's dressed like a fucking clown. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Murray. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And he's like, he's like playing it back and like back like the entire time, just how he's going to act, how he's going to be. It's amazing to me how many people, even fans of the comics, that when we talk about, well, I guess I'll wait till we get to the scene. But you know, the the the, the references to the the Dark Knight Returns, the, mm-hmm. the comic Frank Miller's comic, yep. and that this is all kind of that's what this is from. There's a lot of references from a lot of different, like the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Returns, Batman the Animated Series, The Killing Joke. There's so many references. It's like a best. It's like he, like Todd Phillips and company, just like, all right, here's all the great moments. Let's somehow work it in and make it, like, like make it work. Do you think originally he was going to on the Murray Franklin show to kill himself, or do you? Yeah, think- I think so. 
That's something I've I've wondered if that's what his like actual plan was. That's what it seems yeah. to be implying here. Mm-hmm. I think that was his original plan. Yeah. It'd be pretty poetic in a way too. Like considering that? that it would be pretty poetic too, considering the original reason he was invited on the show was because of his horrible performance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was dying up there. <laughs> right. So it would be kind of a you know, this is what you this is what you get for making fun of the downtrodden, right? If you ever want to know what Mark Hughes looks like when he dances, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> He's lying. I don't wear underwear when I dance. Exactly. <laughs> Which is why I'm not invited back to that dance studio anymore. (laughs) Hold on one second. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, we didn't say anything. We're just watching this amazing film as he paints his tongue. Yeah. That's a a level of dedication right there. (laughs) So weird. Okay, remember, when he gets in, he's got the cigarette, and make sure that you're watching. Oh, yeah, I will. Where he puts it, you know. Do you think the makeup made him the Joker, or do you think he was the Joker before the makeup? This is the final transformation. He's putting the makeup on, and he's about to kill. And this is, I think, this is the final... Uh, this is him turning into. We're watching the the whole movie's the transformation, mm-hmm. but uh, the persona he's creating the he's creating the persona now, and it's in tra- he's in the transformation. Physical transformation is taking place now. So the, the, wall... the putting on the makeup is the monster finally coming out, breaking through his skin. Mm-hmm. So the wall where it has the light switch, that's where it's gonna be. So where he put so that wall that you see on the right. That's where yeah. he's going to do the smile. Like, I, I know it's not like the most amazing thing, <laughs> but it was a weird thing that I saw him do that I don't think anyone's paid attention to is that like he's the clown personified. My mom died. Celebrating. My mom died. I'm celebrating. Yeah. What? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I mean, they got booze, so I guess it's a party, right? Such an like this this scene's unsettling too. Like there's so many like like just out there sequences. Yeah. And like I'm just trying to like I'm not trying to like not have Alright, so there he goes. Yeah. And then like so it doesn't show it, but when it but it's like a subtle thing that when he moves, you can see it. See? Yeah. I've never noticed that before. Like, I paused it. I was like, oh, shit. I think that, I think at some point you can actually see it, like, fully realize that it looks... Yep, there it is. Yeah. Good call. Oh my god, it's so brutal. And like he's getting off to this. Like he's like it's some sort of relief for him. Like he finally he finally exploded and like there's some sort of 
like he his gasket finally blew. Like that's how I'm kind of reading it. Like his gasket finally blew, and he and he got and he like sort of got off. I don't know how to explain that. There's some sort of euphoric nature to him killing that dude. Yeah. Yes, I agree. It's, and I think this is him. He's in. He's enjoying the euphoria of the moment and what that rush that he got out of it. And I think this is definitely when he's, you know, in the previous scene, we saw that he was preparing for the show and he was going to commit suicide. And I think at this point now he's, he knows he's not going to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now he knows he's going to kill instead of killing himself when he gets on the show. And, like, this was another, like, weird thing, too, is he tries to get out, but he can't. He's not tall enough to – and, like, someone posted, like, a meme of that. It's, like, the worst thing ever. And there's, like, that lock that was in the film. I can't remember the exact meme, but I was like, ooh, that one hit close to home. Yeah, this is uh, – Sean Gerber is makes a great point about this scene whenever we've talked about it that uh, he thinks that this – the scene, you know, in the movie, they have him say, you were always nice to me, and he lets him go, and that it would have been better if he had not done that, if he had killed him as well, or if he had said he was going to let him go, but then when we see him leave his apartment, if when he's leaving his apartment, we see that that guy is actually dead in the apartment too. Mm-hmm. Because It's a small point, but, like, see, he opens it, and then he closes the door and says, you were always nice to me. There's that, is he really going to do it or not? And by letting him go, I think it I, it's the one thing, it's the one moment in the film that I think that wasn't the right decision there because it does falsely reinforce the notion that his killings are up to this point related to his sense of justice or injustice or people hurting him or wronging him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you want a Joker movie where he's perceived as it, it, you've just gone all in. That he's now he's homicidal. He's crazy. He's admitted that he enjoys killing. We just saw him commit a murder where he got off on it. Mm-hmm. The right thing to do would be him to maybe think and say, he, "I'm going to let you go." But then looking at the guy, and then when he leaves, he just went ahead and fucking killed him too. That would have been the right decision. And I think Sean's absolutely right on that. And the famous dancing on the step scene to that. I can't, I don't know who sings that song, but that famous song. And then it gets into the uh, soundtrack. But I don't know. Like, I have, like, to me, that's the Denny O'Neill. Denny O'Neill talks about the Joker pretty extensively. And he says, you know, the Joker might kill you, but he also might give you a, a bag of cash and have you on your way. So I don't know. Like, I see both points. I definitely see Sean's point. I definitely see your point. But, like, the Joker is unpredictable. And, like, you yeah. don't know what he's going to do. I agree fly. with that totally. It's. I just think that the one instance they have of him doing that mm-hmm. is specifically related to, oh, you were nice to me, so I won't murder you. Right. And I think that's why I think if they were going to do that, it was fine to have him kill somebody and let somebody else go or whatever. But I just think the framing of it was was a mistake because it lends credence to those criticisms of the film that the movie which I don't think those criticisms are ultimately true because I think he's clearly portrayed as a complete batshit crazy guy who doesn't give a shit and who just enjoys and he admits, literally admits he enjoys killing 
but it muddles that message when you show him actually letting someone go based on they were nice to him and they weren't somebody who hurt him, which reinforces he's only killing people who he thinks have done him wrong. The song is called Rock and Roll Part 2, by the way, uh, by Gary Glitter, and a lot of people were upset about that song mm-hmm. being used in the movie because he's a child molester, a con- convicted child molester. But for what it's worth, he lost all of the rights to that song, and he never gets any money for that song being used in movies. So uh, for what for what it's worth, that is, uh, uh, the song is very famous, and he has not been, it's been years, for years, he has not gotten anything from from its use if anything using the song and him not getting anything for it and not getting a dime while he rots uh is kind of a fuck you to him in some way perhaps so for oh, whatever it was, people who thought it was bad that he was getting money or fame out of it he's definitely not mm-hmm. <laughs> who is this actor i see him in a lot of stuff but i just don't know who that is the one police officer I love when he puts the mask on too, and it kind of like blends in with the crowd. I love his, I love the look, and the, like I think originally, Mark, we had talked about this. There'd be like many different Joker looks in this film because I think that was kind of what was, you know, our quote unquote sources told us is that there were going to be, you know, a couple different Joker looks. But I'm glad they kind of kept it to this one, this one kind of you know yes. look. I'm glad that because I think we talked about it. I think, I think you may have even hinted to me. That that was like not a fi- like this look that he has right now was not like the final version of what the Joker would look like. That was kind of like a Joker begins and like yeah. this at the end of the film he'd look a slightly different or have a completely different look to it. So yeah, this is crazy. they were filming this when we were in New York. I was there. I didn't ever say anything about it, uh, but. When my wife and I were in New York, actually, when they were filming this, and they had the the uh, parts of the area and subway area shut down. Um, Shay Wiggum is, plays the cop. That uh, yeah, he's uh, he's great. He was in Kong Skull Island, and he was really terrific in that too. And when he's eating after everything that's happened, the guy's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "I'm eating," you know. Yeah, he was in uh, the Dick Cheney movie too, Vice. He's gonna he's a good a character actor. Very, very good. I'd be I lo- perf- a lot of people would be upset, I'm sure, but I'd be perfectly fine if if this was the Joker that hypothetically ended up in the Batman movies later or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'd be fine with the Joker who just this is his look the whole time and this is his makeup. Like I could, like they could, they could definitely do that with this film. You know, they could have this version of the Joker in like a future Batman film with Robert Pattinson. The way that they kind of set it all up, they could actually do that too with uh, Black Mask. They could do that with Black Mask. And I know at the end of Birds of Prey, he gets blown up, but remember that is a story told by Harley Quinn. So you have one, you have the Joker who is an unreliable narrator all the time, and you have Harley Quinn who's an unreliable narrator all the time. So I don't think that movie is necessarily because it's not from her perspective as much all the time. But you're right; there are moments where she's narrating. So mm-hmm. arguably, you could say that. 
I don't so, think there's not. I'll say Matt, there's not going to be any crossover between the Robert Pattinson Batman right. movies and any of the DCU movies. It, the only thing, the only potential I think for a, 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 a convergence is I do think because I, I know at one point it was being discussed and the question came up. At least it was batted around. No pun, pun intended. <laughs> like. How, could we get this? Is there a way to get this Joker into? If this is a hit, is there a way to get this to use this Joker again in a Batman movie? So it's I, and I, I they definitely allow they there's the doors open to that possibility. However much you know, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know how possible it will end up being. I don't know if Joaquin Phoenix or anyone would want to, but I assure you, uh, it's been discussed. I know that it, it, there was a point when it was talked about. Uh, I don't know that it ever went beyond just executives and people th- talking about it among themselves. But uh, and I, I know for sure there's the opportunity to uh, – what the heck did I just do? Oh, cancel that. I accidentally tried to launch Hulu. Uh, <laughs> there was – there was definitely my TV was like, what's wrong with you? Do you really want to launch Hulu right now? You're watching a movie. Shut up. Uh, I, they, they, the door is open. It's, it would not be impossible for that to happen. I well, think it'd be, it'd be weird to point, see. Like, I I'd be down for it, but I, is that something that Matt Reeves really wants to do? So you're saying that that's that, the key. No, I don't think I, I would guess Matt Reeves has his own plans and ideas for the Joker. And he, since he's doing at least three movies in the series, uh, he's going to do at least a trilogy or he plans to at least do a trilogy. Uh, He's he sh- he has has got to have his own ideas for it. So at this point, I don't think that there's going to be. Uh, I think things have changed substantially, including because of the coronavirus situation and the delay. The fact that the Batman is now productions delayed on it, and I, I'll be shocked if any of the movies that are planned for 2021 meet their release dates. To be honest with you, mm. so I, I expect it could end up being pushed back to 2022. And I don't know at that point if the interest, by, I don't know if Joaquin Phoenix would even have an interest in carrying it over, let alone doing it that far down the road for another movie. Because we're talking before enough, a, a, a Joker, before he could even appear in a movie with Robert Pattinson, right. it would surely be, we're talking four to five years from now. So so you don't ever, you don't think, you don't ever think that Robert Pattinson, Batman will ever converge with Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. Nope, nope not going to happen. Not going to happen. None of that, none, nothing from the pre-existing DCEU is going to carry over into the Robert Pattinson Batman movies. So if they recasted Harley Quinn, would that... I mean, if Harley, Harley Quinn might show up in the Breathe movies, but it's not going to be the Harley Quinn from any of that we've seen in any of these movies. It'll be a brand new version, a reboot of Harley Quinn. Anything that you, this Batman that he's doing is not set in the past. It's set in the modern day. It's set now. Uh, it's not in the '80s or '90s or any of that stuff. And it's not going to be part of the any of the movies the other movies that have come out so far dc movies it's not tied to them it's not mm-hmm. going to cross over whether they would re- whether they would say you know what we like that actor in that role so much we're going to have him keep playing it even though it's a different one kind of like j jonah jameson in this new spider-man movie mm-hmm. jk simmons again jk simons again excuse me <laughs> uh 
I mean, hey, De Deadpool he's... did it. You can do it. Yeah, so it's it's possible. It's possible that the same actor could play the same character again in the Robert Pattinson movies, but it, they won't actually be the same version of that character from the other movies. It'll be a new version starting over from scratch. Well, we need to we need to talk about that after this after this film. We're almost like I want to talk about that, but we're going to gloss over one of the most yeah important sequences. He he's finally on the Murray Franklin show, pulls out the book, and he goes knock knock. And Murray's like, "You needed a book to say knock knock." Yeah. <laughs> I like like Robert De Niro is good in this movie, and like no one gave him enough credit for this. I don't know why. Like he's really really good. Oh yeah, he is. I'm telling you, man, you've got to watch The King of Comedy. You have to watch The King of Comedy because his performance is he's really doing kind of a riff on Jerry Lewis's character from The King of Comedy. Mm -hmm. And that kind of he's funny and he's likable, but there's a smugness to him, too. And he's very much willing to to get his own laughs at your expense. Mm -hmm. And he finally and he finally is about to reveal that he killed those Wall Street guys. And Mark Maron's character, his producer, is about to just like cut this dude off, cut him off, and Murray's like, "No, nothing bad's gonna happen." So no, <laughs> he he doesn't he doesn't get it. He doesn't get a lot of screen time in this, but mm -hmm. Mark Maron is so freaking good. He's got to watch his comedy special on Netflix right now. It's so fucking funny. He's great. he's, he's uh, I listen to a bunch of podcasts that he's on. So he goes, just shows up on Joe Rogan. He's got his own podcast that he does. Uh, he's on a bunch of st different podcasts that I have subscribed to. So his life is nothing but a comedy. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You think that killing those guys is funny? And the dialogue in this sequence is almost from the script that I've read. I don't know if it changed in your version of your script, Mark. It's pretty much the same. So this, so this. So this uh, dialogue pretty much stayed the same. There was no, like, real rewrites. So they pretty much had this. So. Yeah. And, I, like, I don't, like, I didn't understand when I read the script, like, why Murray was, like, why didn't Murray just cut this off? It's weird. So. Wait, say that again? What's that? Like, I don't understand why Murray didn't just, like, all right, let's just, you know. Cut to the next guest. Please come get this dude. Security. So. Because if you're sitting, if you're hosting a show and you're the kind of person that Murray is and somebody's a guest on your show suddenly is like, oh, by the way, I committed those murders everyone's thinking about. And you suddenly realize, I think this is really the murderer and they're confessing on my show. And I had a chance to get them to say the everything. Yeah. He's got him. He's just running. You don't you. And of course, he's doing it for ratings. But there's also the fact that he resents what he's saying, and so he wants to get say something and respond. He wants to have an argument with him. But also, there is there is arguably a point that if you've got somebody confessing and they're just they're going off and they're saying everything, you don't know what he might do if you if the police grab him and take him away. He might clam up and stop talking. So mm -hmm. if you've got him talking, keep him talking. There's an argument for that. 
although it obviously doesn't work out very well for Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I like the line that he that he gives yeah. too. Is like no one's civil anymore. Like to me, I'm like, oh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. No one's civil anymore. But there's a there's a there's an irony to this because I that's what I always remind people is the message isn't that he's right. The message is he's not civil. He murdered his mother and stabbed a guy in the head to death before he came on this show. Mm-hmm. And he's about to murder people. And he admitted he killed because he liked it. And he thinks killing's fun and funny. And he doesn't give a shit about any social movement. So when he's saying this, he's saying it to get a rise. But it's important to remember he's a psychotic. And he's, what he says one minute to the next isn't necessarily consistent. Mm-hmm. And his idea of no one is civil anymore when he is literally the most uncivil person in the entire movie. He's a mass murderer who wants to cause more mass murder. I love this sequence, too, where he's about to go crazy and he just like and he just comes. It's like a crescendo. It's like a crescendo. And it's always coming up and it's coming up. And then it just boom. Didn't see that coming. Like I knew it was going to get brutal, but I didn't, definitely did not think it was going to get that brutal. And I think for a second he contemplates killing himself too, but then, yeah, he he, he shoots, enjoys it too he much. He the gun, and then he considers, mm-hmm. and he even I think he does point the gun up to himself for a second again after he empties it into Murray. Mm-hmm. He just drops it down. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and then he dances again. I love that. Like, I have the caption on on mine. It says, upbeat music playing. <laughs> Man, like, the, like, and I thought that this was basically going to be the end of the film. Like, he was just going to talk about how but I didn't see, like, this, like, denouement or however you pronounce that. Like, that, because to me, like, this is the end of Act 3. It's the denouement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, however you say that, like, like Act Three, once he shoots Murray Franklin, that Act Three is over with, and then there's the day. No, de- <coughs> well, how do you say that, Mark? Say it denouement. again. Yeah. Denouement. The denouement. So, so, like, and like we see the aftermath of. I love the music playing. I love the '80s police cars. I love how it was shot. So. And then, like to me, this this takes you back to like the Dark Knight. Yeah, that's a Joker. clear that's a clear homage to the Dark Knight right there. Yeah. I really thought this movie was gonna win Best Picture, to be honest. Like I thought that was gonna I thought that was gonna be the huge episode. I didn't think Parasite was gonna win. I thought Joker, just because of how everyone it was in the zeitgeist of everyone. Yeah, Parasite definitely deserved what it got and everything, but. I definitely saw this being the dark horse film of the, this last year's uh, Academy Awards. It's uh, I th- capturing, you know, capturing the 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 public's attention. It, it always comes down to the Academy and who the Academy voters are, and this is simply not the kind of movie that the Academy is going to award. Mm-hmm. Uh, Especially with it being in the superhero genre, still. So that's it. Just it is uh, a movie of this sort. I think it's yeah. It, 
it had a lot of things working against it in that regard. I never, I did not think it had, uh, I did not think it had, uh, was a, one of the top three contenders for best picture. Uh, that's not a commentary about my opinion of the film, because I obviously think it's great, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it just, it wasn't going to have enough support among the more traditional older voters of the Academy. Uh, like, I'm almost surprised they got nominated in the first place. Just, just for that reason alone. I thought he was dead here, not gonna lie. Like, I'm like, oh shit, that's how they kept this movie ends? Fucking kill the Joker again? Damn it, didn't we learn <laughs> this after Jack Nicholson? <laughs> yeah, Kyle, I thought, uh, I did not expect, I, I, I had Todd Phillips as an alternate for the nomination for director. He was my alternate. Uh, he was my top, he was my first alternate. Uh, but I did not. I did not think he would get when I did my predictions I predicted all but him and I, I did not think that he would wind up with the nomination but I did I named him as if if one of mine is off and doesn't get nominated then he's the bat he's the one but I thought it was again being a comic book film I just did not expect that it would get that uh, that nomination so it was it surprised in that regard definitely uh, it, it overperformed in that regard. And here we see, well, we're about to see the famous Thomas Wayne murders. Now, do you think this is actually Joe Chill wearing a Joker mask, or do you think this is kind of like their own version of the Wayne murders? Well, it's definitely their own version of it, but it's, I mean, it's still, I would argue, it would. it's presumably Joe Chill. It's just a different version of Joe Chill. Uh, it's a Joe Chill inspired by the Joker. Whether it's literally true or not is the question. Also, the Whether fact that he's yeah. wearing a Joker mask almost feels like it could be a throwback to Batman 89 in a way. Yes, absolutely. It's a reference to that. Yeah. Still understand why they did that. And we had Sam Hamm on our podcast. We talked to, I think we talked, did we talk about that, Kyle? About the, I don't know, I'm going to have to listen to I that. I can't remember so. if we did or not. I know. The reason I, was pretty basic. They wanted, a, they wanted a direct connection. They wanted the connection between Batman and the Joker, and they wanted Batman's motivation in their fight to be... They wanted the revenge aspect. It was just a simple, well, how much better, you know, oh, this guy's father died and mother died. Well, what if it was, What if the villain's the one who killed him? Oh, yeah, okay. It's, it's easy right. to see how they got from point A to point B, even though it doesn't necessarily work for us as fans mm-hmm. when you're talking about that you know and the performers the actors who played the roles had the age difference to allow that to be the case so it's like well if we're gonna have joker be a gangster anyway and he's you know a good 20 years older than batman then why not mm-hmm. i can see how they got there even though i i didn't it's fine as one version of it i just don't care i prefer it not <laughs> the moment where he kind of rises up uh onto the cop car to me, is another homage to The Dark Knight, where if you remember when the Joker pops out of the upside-down semi-truck and kind of, like, raises up, like, to me, that was, like, another... I know I'm reaching here, I'm stretching that, <laughs> but to me, that's kind of, like, another, like, very, very, very subtle, like, to me, nod back to The Dark Knight, so... This is the final... T- I think this is the final transformation moment right here. I think it is scripted. That's he's the joke. Now he is the joke. Mm-hmm. This I is think the joke. 
in the form. script it definitely says like now he's fully formed as the Joker. I'd have to and go they back did this with the blood, his mouth and his nose all busted, and then him smearing the blood. It was the alternative, the the alternate version of the cut smile, kind of mm-hmm. in a way. It was the creation, the, that creation moment, uh, in a way. I hope we get another version of that Lee Bermejo cut Rick the Grin's smile. So, and like a future version. And then I'm like, all right, well, that movie's over with. Damn, that hit on a high note. Nope. Another scene. Here's the here's the MCU uh, post-credit sequence. Well, this is wonderful because this is... It makes you really think about everything that happened in the movie a second time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It upends everything in a way. It even upends the... So what do you think, Mark? Do you think uh, he made it all up? He's the unreliable narrator? Or do you think like this is like everything that we've seen happen in this film happened? Like it was a real, true story? Well, he's obviously... I love that, the, by the way, that there was a wolf and poster on the wall there as it pulled back. I love that movie. Great movie. Uh, when he says, I was thinking of a joke, and then this part, here it is. You wouldn't get you wouldn't it. wouldn't get it. The joke is he created Batman instead of Batman created him. Uh, that's, I think, of a strong implication there and I think there's an implication of a time, of a loop here as well the fact that the time on the wall on the clock remember at the start he's talking to a woman who is potentially an older version of the same psychiatrist mm-hmm. and she asks him do you remember why you were locked up last time and they never answer the question you just see him in a straight jacket banging his head on a wall mm-hmm. in this asylum and, they, so, and they're playing that song, That's Life. Mm-hmm. The question is, so it's like, well, if this is him locked up, and then it, there's a lot of implications going on here and a lot of uncertainty about it. You notice his foot, bloody footprint, so he seems to have potentially killed her, but it, did he kill her? Or is that symbolic of all the death that he left behind and he's leaving a blood trail in his way? There's a lot of questions, but then they're going to come chase after him Mm-hmm. Is it re- suddenly the light and it's all the bright light shining? Is this his fantasy? He's living in a movie in his head. You know, the fact that the movie itself plays off of so strongly the influence of the King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, but those two films mashed together as some sort of perverse origin for the Joker. What's real and what's not is very kind of loose here, I think. Mm-hmm. Kyle, thoughts? Do you think that this is, was all made up in his head or do you think like what we saw on screen was like the true version true nature of Joker I don't think it was all true but I definitely think there's quite a bit of it that was just because there's there's always nuggets of truth in every every element right 
Um, as far as you know what uh, what parts were actually fabrications that he kind of made up, that it's definitely a lot more difficult to say. It, it was something that would require a lot of thought, a lot of rewatches, etc. Um, I this is like that Inception. Did you know? Did it? Did the thing fall <laughs> over the little uh, whatever his? I can't even think of the name of it. Like the top. Totem. Well, I think yeah, the totem. Um, I think that. He was the unreliable narrator in telling a story about things he's done in a different time period, you know, that kind of like his version of the Joker. But I think that most of it, especially the stuff with his mom, I think most of that stuff was just all a play just to pull at the heartstrings of this guy was so poorly, you know. Do I think he killed Murray Franklin? Yes, I do think he... But I don't know, like, it's such a, it's such an interesting, interesting film. It's an interesting version of the Joker. Like, uh, you know, uh, Alan, Alan Moore, you know, in his, you know, killing joke said, you know, if the Joker had a backstory, it would be multiple. And that's kind of how they played it up in the Dark Knight as well. So I, I think that he just made everything up that he's been in Arkham Asylum you know, he got locked up by Batman kind of a thing. I don't That's just my opinion. So who the fuck knows? <laughs> it's interesting that in every scene of the movie, whether it's jumping forward, jumping back, the flashback to when he was locked up, he always looks the same. Mm-hmm. So the idea that he is at this age older telling a story or remembering the events and in his memory, he still looks the same and is older, but arguably he could actually have been much younger in the story that's being told here. Uh, we don't really know. We don't know what happened when. I, I very much agree that it's he probably took bits. Some some elements are true. Some aren't. It's filtered through how he how he remembers them, how he tells himself the story he tells other people. All of that comes into play. So. Uh, I think it's I think it's intentionally open for us, you know, it's open for interpretation and for us to speculate about just like the Joker character himself in the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's full of shit. I think he's telling this therapist or his social worker, you know, that's just like I said, that's just my opinion of it. Like there is such like and that's what gr- is great about this film is. It's open to interpretation. And, like, that is what I love about cinema. As you know, it goes back to, like, Citizen Kane. What, you know, was the sled, spoiler alert, was the sled, the rosebud sled, was that a commentary on Charles Foster Kane losing his life? I'm sorry, losing his childhood? Or was that just something that he remembered at the very end of his life? So, like, and it goes back to this. Like, this is a modern classic where it's going to be, you know, they're going to be discussing this at film schools for years and years to come. People are going to write books about it. They're going to write a book about, you know, the making of this film and the screenplay and all that stuff. Like, I think that this movie is like, is a generational film. People are going to catch up to this film, you know, like our kids, you know, you know, if we have kids, whatever, who knows now. But like the next generation of film goers and audience goers are going to catch up with this film. They're going to have their own interpretation of it. It's like I said, it's generational. I'm looking forward to, you know, a couple years down the line, um, 
So to see kind of where where this where this and I don't know did Todd ever kind of I think Todd finally came out and said that it was kind of like he was an unreliable narrator. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what he said. So yeah, they definitely. I mean, we talked a lot about this with them at the screening that I that I attended when I saw it the first time was with Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix, and it was just there was a small group of us there, and we talked about it with them afterwards. And uh, you know, they were very mindful of the fact that, of course, the quest you absolutely are meant to question what was real and what wasn't, how much of it was his delusion that there was a lot of playing with time uh they, although they didn't get into that as as much but um the, just the concept of this being the joker and that traditionally you don't know for sure what is real and what's not with him and that he is a psychotic person uh and that all of that came up and and was discussed and it was very you know it's it's very obvious that you're supposed to take you're supposed to take that with you from the film and that it's meant to be open and for you to wonder what exactly was going on and what you saw, what, what did you see and what didn't you see? What was his, uh, was he really afflicted or was it just who he was? Was it all in his head? Mm-hmm. And so, on. so, uh, you were to give this film a grade, Kyle, what would you give it? I know we talked about this when we did, but now that we're watching it, like playing it back, do, do you still have the affinity for it like you did when you first saw it? I know this is what oh, your yeah. second time watching it. This, this is my second time viewing it. But I saw quite like it a lot. I'm gonna go ahead and say it's a, it's a solid A plus in my book. Masterpiece, so A plus for me. So script strong. Like there, like I was. I'm looking for plot holes. Can't find any. <laughs> I'd give it. Uh, I'd give it an A. Um, it's. I think the the story. What's really transcendent to me in this is obvious is the performance by Joaquin Phoenix, the cinematography, the, and the score. Uh, those are the three things that really elevate this movie to me. Uh, it, I, I think, regardless of what anyone feels about any other aspect of the movie, I have a hard time imagining there's anyone out there that would seriously argue that the performance the cinematography or the score were not terrific and really the dir- great. The direction too. Like, like Todd Phillips doesn't get enough credit because he is considered a comedy director, but he delivers like, he oh, yeah, had to, sure. you know, you know, he had to get, you know, pull out a performance from everyone. It just wasn't Joaquin Phoenix. Robert De Niro was strong. Mark Marin was strong. You know, the supporting characters were strong. Like, he was able to pull out. Like, he kind of set this up. Like, he did a masterful job. And, you know, like, like I'm like I'm seriously impressed. Like, oh, for I, sure. could, I could see him, like, really take, you know, on a Batman film at some point. Or, like, another superhero film. Like, obviously, I don't think he would do that. I think he, I think he kind of wants to do something completely different. Maybe he goes back to his comedy roots. Um, but, like, damn good job. Like, I, I'm impressed. Yeah, I think uh, it's he definitely. This was definitely a, a good job, uh, and from Phillips. And I'll I freely admit, and I said this at the time in my review that I did not think he. I would not have guessed from watching his the Hangover movies, and no offense intended, but just realistically, I don't think anybody watched the Hangover movies and expected this. From no, that. it's just the same thing with 
you know, uh, George Miller. You don't watch George Miller's previous Mad Max movies. They don't prepare you for what he accomplished in Fury Road. It was a completely different level of filmmaking. And I think that's true of this. I do believe, I understand that there are people who would say, if you see Taxi Driver and you see The King of Comedy, this movie is so heavily inspired by them that a lot of, that there are people who, and I'm not saying I agree, and I don't agree with them, but there are people who make the point that if you're taking that degree of influence from other movies to such an extent, and you have somebody like Joaquin Phoenix that you have admitted you allowed leeway to alter and just do their own thing and improvise a lot of their performance on screen, and someone who already is such a great performer to begin with, that it does make the job a bit easier for you as a director, possibly. And again, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying I do understand why there are people who would make that point that if you've got Joaquin Phoenix and you're watching Taxi Driver and King of Comedy and then you're just essentially trying to recreate that kind of thing, uh, that it's hard to judge just how much you can really say this was a unique, pure director vision of its own. Mm-hmm. I, that's just inherent. If you're going to take that degree of influence from other films, it blurs that line between your creative vision and the creative vision that you have heavily used and, and aspired to. That said, I personally think, look, dudes, Todd Phillips made a movie that is this, is this an equivalent of what if Martin Scorsese, Scorsese made a Joker movie? Yeah, this is the equivalent of that. And I don't know that Martin Scorsese would have made a better film. So take that as you, you know, for what it's worth. But when it comes to the question of how good Todd Phillips directing was, I think that speaks for itself. And the script Mm -hmm. was, it was a a terrific script as well. So uh, kudos all around. Uh, Definitely uh, one of the one of several great examples of, of wonderful filmmaking and cinema in the DC world of film. Um. So, yeah, that's going to be it for whatever episode this is, Kyle. I forgot. Like, we're in this time <laughs> continuum that episode just never uh, – 80 billion. 80 billion, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Mark, so, yes, you did drop that wonderful article today. Make sure that where, – where can we find you on the social medias? Uh, you can – I've pretty much left Facebook, so uh, it's, it's kind of become a vast apocalyptic wasteland uh, mm-hmm. there. So – uh, you can find me on Twitter, if you dare, at Mark Hughes Films. Uh, I don't know that I recommend it because I don't just talk cinema there. Uh, I rant a lot. But you can find my my film opinions and my thoughts on movies at Forbes. If you look at uh, Forbes.com backslash sites, that's S-I-T-E-S, backslash Mark Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S. Uh, and... Other than that, you can uh, find me going crazy at home, wanting to hurry up and be over whatever illness this is that I have. Uh, you know where to find us on our our Twitter, Shanlin on Bat, Batman Shanlin, Kyle. Looting Kyle. Thanks right, for having me on the show, guys. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate well. it. Always a good time.